welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform 2.0 to the world's most impactful geopolitical developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. You can find these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're recording in front of a live studio audience from Dana Point, California at PwC's fifth annual International Tax Conference. Today, I'm excited to have Dr. Alexis Crow back on the podcast. Alexis holds a PhD from the London School of Economics and leads PwC's geopolitical investing practice, helping companies and asset managers with global investment decisions. Alexis, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. So Alexis, you were one of the few people who had more frequent flyer miles than me before the start of the pandemic over two years ago. I've got my first international trip in a few weeks. Are you making the rounds internationally again? And, and how's that been going? Thanks so much. I actually had a glorious trip to Paris a uh, week before last, and it was fantastic to be back in person. Um, definitely stringent entry requirements and getting pumped up with the third vaccine. But other than that, I'm, you know, ready to go. Nice. I'm a little stressed about the whole getting in, getting out, coming back in, but I'm certainly really enjoying being able to get in front of everybody, particularly at this conference and just in general, as we slowly start to get back to normal. It's fantastic. So let's jump into the material because there is no shortage of things to talk about from a geopolitical and economic perspective. What we're going to do today is we're going to spend some time talking about the macroeconomic trends, a brief tour around the geopolitical world, and finally get your thoughts on how specific sectors are impacted by today's global economic changes. So let's start with the macroeconomic trends. In a recent study you published looking out for 2022, and a lot has changed even since you published that, you first focus on trends in capital expenditures. What's going on there and why was that your starting point? Thanks so much, Doug. So firstly, we were looking at what is the trajectory of economic growth? What's really driving economic growth? And, and one key trend that we highlight is the fact that financial markets have been completely moving out of sync with economic reality. Uh, that was something that we experienced throughout the trade war. It's something that we experienced at the start of COVID. Um, and certainly it's something that we've experienced despite you know, the, the, the asynchronous reopenings of the economy across the globe. And one of the reasons for that is the liquidity paradigm um, and investors and market participants really focusing on the ability for central banks to continue to provide an exceptional support. Um, and now what we face is this question of beneath financial markets and the financialization of our economy, what is the key driver of economic growth? And prior to the experience of the pandemic, what we noted was that the bulk of the employment gains and job gains and wage gains across the board for emerging market developing economies as well as advanced economies was in services. So that's the high-end blue-collar, high-end white-collar business and professional services, such as everyone in this room, and then blue-in leisure and hospitality-collar services as well. And this was very much the case across jurisdictions. When we entered into COVID and households were not only relegated to work from home, but to shop from home, to entertain and watch from home, to school from home, all of a sudden the consumption and the production of goods took precedence over the production of services. 
And a lot of those contact intensive services, of course, became muted as people refrained from those type of economic interactions. So what we started at the, at the beginning of this calendar year was to say, well, what will continue to drive the bulk of economic activity going forward? And certainly one thing that we've identified is capital expenditure and companies investing in different types of capital stock across the board, uh, be it in enhancing cyber and cyber defense and cybersecurity with more of the, the remote working, um, be it, uh, I would even say, a, a duplicated form of capital expenditure where in an elevated commodity price environment, you're investing more just to be able to keep products and inputs in stock. Um, and on demand, uh, be it in new real estate you know, opportunities, uh, new office uh, de-densification in terms of office. So that's certainly also been a key driving force of the economic momentum in the year to date. So there's a lot of discussion as a follow on to that with respect to inflation and the inflationary environment that we're in. How does that factor in, particularly as we think about spending both on capital expenditures as well as consumer spending on services and, and other goods? I will just point out that in our, in our environment where people are completely inundated uh, with information and headlines that uh, we, we often tend to think in binary and very extreme terms. So it's either double digit inflation back to the 1970s or low to negative interest rates. Right. And there you know, shall the two meet. And so I think what we're looking at is even in the robust debates that some of the more hawkish um, Fed officials have had, you know, with Chairman Powell, et cetera, um, have all still been, you know, not a market departure beyond uh, that 2% at price stability point. Um, so that's, I think, the first important thing to point out. The second is, again, just to take a pause and take a step back. This is something I help our executives to do, is to break down the difference between headline inflation, producer price input inflation, core inflation, wage, and asset price. So the Fed's preferred measure, and then other central banks around the world preferred measure is generally on a core, so you strip out the volatile food and energy prices, which is something that we're witnessing at the moment, um, and why that's helpful to take that out. Um, in considering the headline environment, firstly, and those volatile food and energy prices, we've witnessed you know, a, a completely whipsaw approach in commodity markets since the start of COVID. On the supply side, oil supply and oil production actually dropped by the largest amount in, in post-war record, um, just at the beginning of the crisis. On the demand side, we also saw um, the lowest amount of carbon emissions ever historically on record in 2020, just gives you an indication of the shock to demand. You and I weren't flying around the world. Nobody was Said. leaving their house. Exactly. Yes. Uh, so there was a complete cessation to mobility resulting in a, in a complete shock to demand. Then as we started to see the reopening of the economy on the demand side, um, I think many market participants were shocked at the fact that we had such resurgent and robust demand and mobility in different pockets. We even saw that with Omicron, that which was meant to dent oil demand. Um, and we certainly did not witness that at the end of 2021, start of 2022. Uh, on the supply side as well, if we think about not only liquid fuels, but also the other types of commodities, um, such as metals, such as food prices, such as food materials, we've also witnessed shocks in bottleneck to supply, um, which has forced uh, many economists to actually downgrade their outlooks for Germany, the Eurozone as a whole, the United States for their economic growth as relying upon consumption and inputs to manufacturing. 
We've also witnessed climate-related events washing out literally China's supply of coal in some key jurisdictions, uh, creating excess rainfall in some jurisdictions, as well as um, drought in others, contributing to this exacerbated food price environment. That's passed through into discretionary income. Mm -hmm. um, vegetable prices jumped by 32% year on year in China at the end of last year. Um, we've certainly seen you know, policymakers in the United States focus on the pockets of food security and, and food deserts that, that the lowest income households face in the US. Um, that also dents the economic forecasts in terms of consumption driving economic growth. On a separate but related note, we also have housing market inflation, mm -hmm. um, which has been driven by a number of different factors here in the United States, as well as other advanced economies. Um, and, and we continue to witness that on the asset price side. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something important to point out. We also face this elevated producer price input inflation, where in the United States year on year, we just hit 10% growth. Um, we also hit inflation 9.3% in Japan year on year in producer price input. So again, contributing to that almost duplicated CapEx environment where companies are needing to invest such an extraordinary amount just to be able to keep inputs on, on stock. So how do you think that that will impact consumer spending, whether it's in the service, on the services side, on the product side, um, and, and particularly with the raising rate environment, you mentioned that the US, you know, and, and Chairman Powell has mentioned that they plan to, I think, raise rates for the next six cycles, I think is what they said. How, how do those relate, and how do you see it potentially impacting a number of the, the companies in this room? Sure. Well, I think, you know, firstly, with regard to consumer spending, what we look at on a macro basis is where do you have the economies that are most reliant on consumption as a driver of economic growth? So the United States standing at about 70 percent, that's certainly concerning. I'm more concerned about energy price shocks here than I am really on, on, on across the food basket um, and transportation costs. And we can come to that when we yes. talk about the commodity price environment. But um, you know, China is also an economy which is navigating toward more consumption oriented. But this elevated price environment that we've mostly witnessed has been associated with the exception of a few key categories at key times is associated with goods. Mm. And that almost back to the future anachronistic consumption of goods and production of goods being curtailed. Um, so it's not necessarily related to the services environment. Even if you look at inputs to services-oriented activity in the United States, it's, it's muted. Mm -hmm. um, so that, I think, is important to be able to point out. Now, this is, we're talking in the kind of COVID pandemic lens. Now we've entered into new territory, which we've identified mm -hmm. since, since, I think, autumn of last year as being um, potentially calamitous, not only to financial markets, but to economic growth with regard to the input of Russia to global oil markets and natural gas markets. And that is a completely different territory. Right. We're going to come back to that because I know that's on a lot of people's minds. The Before we go there, however, one other thing that you talked about was supply chains. And I think the last time that you were on the podcast, we talked about the trade war that was going on and really how that environment had really upset the, the supply chain. And then we have the pandemic and a number of other macroeconomic events that have really caused a lot of our, a lot of our clients and, and taxpayers to think about the entire supply chains, looking for alternatives, looking for, for near sourcing. What are you seeing in, in that respect in the supply chains, particularly as we think about with the, the, the crisis and the war going on in Ukraine, and what are you seeing from a supply chain perspective? So 
I suppose when we last met here three years ago, 2019, we were still reflecting on the trade war, which for many of us observers would have said, we missed the old trade war days. Those were so simple compared to what we face today. Um, what I would say that what we conceded then and recognized then was that despite the trade war, we've witnessed anything but deglobalization. Two-way trade and goods between the United States and China hitting a record high throughout uh, the, the pandemic, right. you know, situation, um, you know, United States hitting record trade deficits uh, on our import dependency of things such as, you know, laptops and working from home, medical equipment, textiles, inputs, etc. Um, Everything we ordered online while we were stuck at home waiting for it to come in that, that magic box. Exactly. Right? Like summer camp. Right. Um, but so, and that obviously has had an upside impact on China's on China's whole economic activity and economic growth trajectory as well um, as pockets of developing Asia. So what we've witnessed is anything but, I would say, an end to globalization. On the supply chain side, what we had witnessed then was moving from that just in time to just in case. Uh, so potentially duplicating or, or, or fragmenting and diversifying your supply chain activity. So not relying on one particular input of a, of a chemical to go into a paint from a province in China, but also looking to Vietnam to be part of that supply chain activity. And that, again, is not just pandemic related. That's also weather and climate related events where we have just increasing amount of you know, severity of storms and natural disasters, um, which we continue to witness. I would say that then into the pandemic and what many advanced economies such as France, such as the US, uh, such as Japan woke up and witnessed was we had a critical shortage of pharmaceutical material, medical supply, respirators, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So and in the case of the UK, there was a big focus on the fact that there was a lot of import dependency on critical agricultural products. So let's onshore some of this. It was the, was the, the, the phrase du jour of many politicians to be able to critically onshore um, you know, these critical materials, as well as things like semiconductors. And now we enter this new phase uh, where the energy supply and our global energy interdependence has been clearly revealed and forced a dose of humility upon politicians, uh, companies, policymakers, investors, etc. So I would have said that prior to this, the, the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, what we faced was, again, fragmentation as opposed to wholesale localization, often with regard to cost. Even in the case of, let's say, Japan, where you had the previous administration, the Suga team, as well as Kishida's team, focusing on generating onshoring semiconductor activity so that OEMs wouldn't go without semiconductor chips, you're still relying on foreign companies to help you do that. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not necessarily moving the goods, it's moving the human capital, the R&D, and the talent as well. Um, so we were still living in a globalized world. I would say now, with this current crisis, um, that is forcing everyone not only to realize the extent to which we're still in the old economy with regard to fossil fuels, uh, but the extent to which you know we are we are tied at the hip with other countries around the world, and that is probably going to force a big rethink. Certainly, it will catalyze a growth of of domestic renewable energy capacity. And we were already there with the commitments to build back better and build back greener. And, and I think that will clearly be exacerbated in light of the current conflict. 
Right. I think that everyone in this room is excited that, as I think you predicted on one of the prior podcasts, that globalization is not dead. Um, I think that as tax professionals, you, I like the way you describe kind of going from just in time to just in case. That creates challenges for us as tax professionals because we build structures you know, that where we've got certainty with respect to how we may supply goods. And then as we think from just in time to just in case, that can obviously throw a wrench in from a tax perspective. Every time you're sourcing in a different country, every time something's crossing a different border, there are obviously tax implications. And so I think it's required us as tax professionals to even be closer to the business people and really understand what those just-in-case steps. And I certainly have seen that in my practice, and I know a number of our participants here have been really kind of scurrying to, to keep up with the business to find those other opportunities. One of the other things that we've been spending a lot of time on, both within you know, PwC as well as our clients and, and, and people all over, is the, the great resignation and labor market dynamics. And we talked a little bit earlier in the conference today that this isn't just a US phenomenon. The labor market dynamics and the great resignation is a global phenomenon. Talk a little bit about that and how is that impacting the, the global economy? I would actually not agree with what was agreed today. Or, okay. Uh, um, I, I, I think okay. The, the Great Resignation is a predominantly U.S. phenomenon when we look at direct labor force participation rates across geographies. Um, and part of the reason for this in the United States, in contrast with many of the other jurisdictions represented in the room, is we do not have the job retention schemes in place that many other OECD countries have, uh, many other Asian countries have, even Latin America that follows more of an EU common law um, trajectory. And so what we had in the United States and labor markets in the wake of the GFC and in the wake of COVID was creative destruction. And so we saw a lot of actually you know, extraordinary amount of job creation happening at the same time as job decim decimation because when a worker got phased out of a hospitality job, that worker might have gone and gotten higher pay in a logistics and warehousing job, which were suddenly in demand. Mm -hmm. um, by contrast, in France, you actually see the highest labor force participation rate since the data has been taken. Um, and so it, it looks different from different geographies. What I think probably many in this room are experiencing as managers of talent and what we as, as PwC and other, other companies is a burnout in the white collar services end of the spectrum. That is not, that is not unique. And I think mm -hmm. for that specific part of the sector, um, I would say that the, the glamor of, of being in California talking on a podcast uh, is severely curtailed by two years of you know, sitting at your desk in your sweats. <laughs> um, Absolutely. And I would say that um, the burnouts happening across the age spectrum, we actually saw uh, 5 million people take retirement in 2020 in the US labor market, extraordinary numbers, people just taking early retirement. Um, you're seeing people step out of the labor force like a baseball metaphor to be able to just jockey into a different position. So moving from one bank to another for higher pay, moving from one logistics company to another for higher pay. Um, and I think what we've also witnessed is, although you've seen in the US labor market low interest rates uh, making housing affordable as a purchase for millennials who had been priced out of the market, what you've also seen is some younger generation saying, I don't have to pay rent in New York or San Francisco. I can sit at home with my parents. And so to incentivize those people back out of the labor market is one thing. Mm -hmm. um, 
What I would say that connected to the wage inflation side of things is, again, if you look at wage inflation across the EU and across the Eurozone, it's very muted. Uh, it still hasn't recovered from the European sovereign debt crisis days. In the US, this is a very different phenomenon where in traditional economics, you're incentivizing, as, as an employer, you have to incentivize labor to come back into the labor force. Mm -hmm. So this is something very unique that we're witnessing at the moment. What I would say is that for the first time since the decline of unions in the United States, labor is having pricing power vis-a-vis -vis the employer. Right. There's another dynamic to this, which we, as we face these you know, waves of the virus and varying degrees of, of, of caution on behalf of people engaging in economic interactions plus associated government uh, lockdowns, is the role of the office with regard to retaining talent. And this is a live debate we have. And PwC has been flexible since I joined the firm seven years ago, which I think is a positive thing because it allows people to be able to you know, manage life and family life, et cetera, in a way that uh, was certainly inconceivable with my previous employer. Um, but what I would say is that you know, there's a degree of this where then people if are 100% remote don't feel plugged into an environment. And so, you know, I think there's there's an ideal balance to be struck here and harmony to be struck here between productivity, happiness, balance, flexibility that is not being struck at the moment. Right, and that's a real challenge, particularly <clears throat> in a technical field like international tax, where a lot of the learning that when I was growing up that took place was those kind of water cooler, if you will, conversations, the conversation after the client call, the conversation after the, the meeting. And I know that many of our clients are also challenged with that. How do we continue to create that connectivity and the development from a technical perspective as well as some of those soft skills when everybody's just sitting in front of their computer? And I think it's been a challenge for a lot of us to actually get people back in the office and figure out where that balance is. There's something else I would want to add there too, which is that, um Prior to COVID, everyone was talking about automation and robots coming for our jobs. And that was the kind of, when I gave a dinner speech and, and executives had had too much wine, and that was when people would start to really be concerned about the future of their children. And that was the predominant concern. Now we're in a whole different world. Right. But what I would say is, in the environment in which, particularly in the tax industry, in the environment in which we continue to disrupt ourselves with the application of technology and we continue to replace skills by investing or tasks by investing in technology, it's those soft skills and the human relationships and the ingenuity and the creativity that comes from collaboration and being in person together that cannot be automated or replicated. Right. And that's what we, you know, I think COVID was a stopgap measure and the tele telecommunication were a stopgap, but that's where we need to keep investing in the development of those soft skills. Absolutely. All right, so let's go back to, you had, you've already talked a little bit about commodities and really wanted to, to take a brief tour around the world of how geopolitics are playing a major role in the macroeconomic environment. And we obviously at this point have the largest land war in Europe since World War II. Um, in Ukraine and a significant impact on energy and overall commodity prices. So talk a little bit about that and uh, what do you see in your crystal ball as, as, the, uh, as this conflict continues to take shape? So firstly, I think it's important to point out that um, we're seeing this play out in real time today with the EU discussion on the import ban. 
Russia's role in global commodity markets cannot be misunderestimated. Um, there is a rule of thumb in, in oil prices that for every 100,000 barrels of oil supply you take off the market per day, the price can move by a $1.10 differential. So if you consider that pre-COVID numbers were at about 100 million barrels a day of consumption on a global basis of oil, Russia provides in the order of 9 to 11% of that daily consumption. So you can see that we're already, we came into this crisis in an elevated environment, how quickly that price can move up. So that's on the oil side, also is home to the, large, the world's largest reserves of nat gas. We obviously see this. Um, and I would say that Russia had been offering preferential terms that were well received by a lot of the main importers, including the Eurozone. Um, and the ability to pivot away from that is going to take massive investment into infrastructure. Um, you know, the US in, 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 in pumping out its bountiful shale gas reserves, you know, still faces a significant cost from shipping, liquefaction, regasification, um, which some, you know, importers didn't necessarily want to pick up. There is one gas field alone that provides 9% of Japan's daily not gas consumption. That's extraordinary. Um, so I think it's important to, to point that out. I think we were not humble enough to recognize that prior to this crisis, nor were we humble enough to realize that even in this environment of, of growing renewable energy capacity, that we still remain on oil as a use of transport and we still remain on nat gas as a use of power generation, such that even in an elevated commodity price environment, Japan's imports of coal have nearly trebled within the last year. The United States and Germany posted their major coal power increase for power generation since 2014 here in the US as well. So humility is required, certainly, um, I would say. Also, just on a regional basis, what I would say the diagnosis is to say that we're in a new Cold War is very elementary and misleading. We are in a fragmented world. And I heard someone whispering that they were very depressed about some of the earlier conversations. So I'm not gonna leave us in a, the de depressing fragmented, but if you look at a map of the UNGA vote on Ukraine, it shows a very divided and fragmented world. Mm -hmm. And there are different camps. There are winners and losers from this elevated commodity price environment. Certainly the GCC, energy exporting countries within the Middle East have been in a, a pole position to be able to benefit from this. We've seen this with some of the cementing of Qatar now cementing a long-term nat gas supply contract with Germany. Uh, the uh, Amir Tamim actually coming to the White House to meet with Biden to talk about energy supply, also cementing contracts with, with China. Um, what we've also witnessed are, you know, Saudi Arabia actively engaging with China as well as with other countries across the globe. And so that's certainly, I think, a dynamic that's important. That's also happening contemporaneously with the United States withdrawal from the region, where with one of the largest oil fields in the world in the Permian Basin, the U.S. had taken a step back from the region. And I think that was also underscored by the Abraham Accords and the normalization of ties between the UAE and Israel. Um, so 
we're in this environment of, of frothy commodity markets. There are, again, winners from a current account basis. Uh, Brazil comes to mind, Colombia comes to mind, where some of the commodity exporters have been benefiting from this. Um, not only thinking about liquid fuels, but other you know, countries that provide you know, part of the global wheat basket as well. Um, but in a country such as Brazil, unfortunately, the country's had to fight and contend with the pass-through of headline inflation into core inflation. So hasn't necessarily enjoyed the same windfall uh, as others. Um, and then looking across developing Asia, you know, this is where you have to say the price takers and the price makers look very different with regard to how much of an import dependency there is to be able to meet primary energy demand. Um, you know, for, for Japan, that number is 94%. For India, that number is 85%. Uh, countries such as Indonesia and Vietnam might look slightly different with, with their own commodity price environment. Um, so I would say going forward, what this means uh, to be able to interact in this fragmented world is that things look slightly more nuanced than just one camp or the other. Mm -hmm. There's another question that we would have talked about prior to this conflict too, which is how to navigate the US-China relationship mm -hmm. as well and how that unfolds in the midst of this crisis is certainly something to watch. Well, let's go there to, to, to the US and, and China. Um, what, what, what do you see now, particularly with the dynamics with Russia um, and, and how that could, could potentially be changing in, in the short to midterm? So we've watched the extent to which some of the energy exporters, as I mentioned, have been you know, investing potentially in multi-billion dollar refineries across Asia. So, Talking about the United States withdrawing from the Middle East, you know, Asia has been stepping in, and particularly looking to rich income and emerging income Asia. Uh, South Korea, for example, uh, Japan, and China. Um, what I would say is that when you think about the movement of goods, of which resources is a good, I would say that here there can be some emotion, but it's not necessarily a very emotional topic with the United States. Really, the focus here is on technology and trade and technology and the potential for two different technological systems to emerge between a China camp and a US camp. And that, I think, is something that will underpin the current crisis and outlive this current crisis that we're facing in commodity price environments. And that this is simply rooted in the differing understanding of the relationship between technology and national security between Beijing and Washington. And that's something that I think executives have to have a handle on. Yeah, one of the other things that we talked about in anticipation of this podcast was the fragmentation from a political perspective that we see throughout the world. And obviously, we see this a lot, lot here in the US, but it is certainly not unique um, in the US. And maybe bring in from a, from a tax perspective, right? We've seen the exorbitant spending across the globe to, to manage through the, the financial crisis as a result of, of the pandemic. What is the interplay between the, the conservative politicians, the ability to be able to, to try to reduce taxes, and, but, but yet still now because of all the pandemic spending, you know, what, do you, what do you see in, in your crystal ball related to, to some of those trends? So the fragmentation we speak of is very much, I think, a, on a regional basis and a global basis. We see deepening polarization on a domestic political basis. Um, and obviously, this is a trend that was, you know, extant since Brexit, uh, and we've faced it ever since. What's interesting to note, what you're highlighting is, one, I think, is the relationship as tax professionals to think about the relationship between 
low taxation conservative politics and to think about the relationship between the green energy transition and conservative politics because these are both being disrupted and that traditional relationships are being um, unwound. On, the, on this kind of outlook, we forecasted for 2022 would be the referendum on COVID because you were looking at, an, at a moment in which governments were going to unwind a lot of the shock and awe fiscal firepower. Now actually that locus is being translated from recovery to shielding households from a rise in energy costs if you have the fiscal space. But nevertheless, unwinding a lot of the, the shock and off fiscal firepower, and then uh, a moment when people were coming out of their homes and really voting on how COVID was handled in their own jurisdictions. And I, I, I speak as a New Yorker when I say that I think New Yorkers felt uh, relatively happy with the way that it was handled, even though we were you know, at the height of the cases, et cetera. And we, we, we were unique. Uh, there weren't many other people from any other municipalities or jurisdictions that I spoke to that were, were content with the way the crisis was handled where they lived. So that means you're voting with their feet uh, in, in a very strange economic environment as well, uh, with a lot of uncertainty. So what we've seen in key jurisdictions starting in 2022 is this increasing polarization. In Brazil, the center is not holding between Bolsonaro and Lula. In South Korea, um, there is now a, a, a meme that, that the new prime minister, sorry, the new president is now K-Trump. Um, so there is you know, a deepening element of conservatism here. Um, what I think is important to call into question is in the world in which we've unleashed this fiscal firepower, can we afford to have this environment of lower taxation? And we've seen that relationship be disrupted with Boris Johnson and how unhappy the conservative establishment has been there when he stepped in and said, we have to raise taxes. Um, so I think that is going to be a question that's forced on many, um, particularly as we look at the, you know, the other demographic forces such as aging, demographies, you know, social security, pension gaps, et cetera. I think those will continue to come into question as well as taxation on the energy transition. That's another thing that I would also highlight is something just to be on your dashboard is the relationship between the rise of the right and the environment. Mm. Because particularly in the US, you know, there, there was always this relationship that that was a liberal thing, that was a Democrat thing. And I think that's also going to change the more and more younger generations are focused on, on ESG. Yeah, and on, on the taxation point, we've spent a lot of time on the cross-border tax talks talking about the OECD's proposals, specifically Pillar 1, Pillar 2, but I think absolutely we're seeing a global trend of increased corporate taxation. Now, how that actually gets effectuated, what jurisdictions implement, it's still a lot of open questions, but can certainly see that as a potential funding mechanism as governments are looking to, to, to raise revenue. So let's turn to some sectors and maybe want to kind of fire away and maybe just get a couple of sentences from you um, that we have a number of sectors represented at our international tax conference here today. Maybe we'll start in, in let's start with ESG because that's obviously been, been hot. I'm not sure that's officially a sector more than a topic, but let's start with, uh, with ESG. What, what are some of the trends that you're seeing in, in that respect? What I would say is uh, typically from a taxation and reporting standpoint, I think that the role of, of tax to play in the environmental component of this cannot be underestimated. Um, the extent to which you know, companies and, and represented by, by executives such as yourselves will be able to use tax credits 
um, to, I think that's a very clear dynamic. Um, the extent to which governments will use fiscal policy to affect structural change to be able to move toward net zero commitments is absolutely clear. That's much more easily codified than the other two components, the S and the G, which are a little more wobbly right. uh, to be able to report on. Um, here, I'm, I'm interested in thinking about the S component and investing in skills, where traditionally, and J.K. Galbraith writes about this, traditionally, education has been viewed as a public outlay, um, as a public good, and therefore not something that companies should be investing in or private investment should be directed toward. Yes, you're investing in your private schools for your kids, but it's not necessarily something you would think of. Um, but I think increasingly, particularly in this environment where you're needing to incentivize labor across the labor market, is the ability for an employer to invest in continuing to upskill the, their people. And there is open talk and has been open talk in the United States over the last few years about starting to use tax credits to support human capital investment. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is a critical dynamic going forward, also when it comes and ties back to the reporting on the S part of that ESG. The governance component is uh, something that's very um, dear to my heart, and, and I would even say that what we're looking at and identifying is what is the next big thing with regard to even reducing the gender gap in wealth, in employment, in pensions, um, in wages, et cetera. And I think that will increasingly, we're seeing that uh, being reported today in the US and across geographies need to be reported on as well. Okay, so a little speed round here at the end because we're getting tied on time. The energy sector. Well, we're seeing a lot of money chase commodities, such that some investment banks have talked about the, you know, the, the revenge of the old economy, um, that we were chronically underinvested in some of these. Um, I would just also point out some of the guidance has been to buy lithium on dips because you're also looking at the inputs across the new energy spectrum, um, which are obviously going to remain volatile but elevated. Um, I would also say that from the taxation standpoint, there's an interesting point even prior to this conflict, which was a lot of, I call them the green ninjas. The green ninjas were saying that the energy companies should be taxed in this elevated commodity price environment. But I think there's guidance to be able to say you can channel those excess profits or profits into investing in the energy transition. Um, so I, I would definitely be long on energy. All right, technology. Uh, so it's interesting, tech manufacturing enjoyed a super, uh, you know, a super 2020, 2021 amidst this elevated uh, chip crunch uh, environment that we faced as well. Um, tech services are a little bit more of a question mark. Obviously here in the US, things looking good. Uh, China investors have pulled out slightly for different dynamics there. All right, and last and probably near and dear to my heart where I've spent a lot of time, consumer markets. So consumer markets, um, I think what we've certainly seen is finally some of the, the, the producers of Maine, even household goods, finally passing on that cost increase and the price increase to the consumer. Whereas consumer market companies had hitherto not regained pricing power over the consumer in the years since the GFC, we certainly started to see those cost increases be implemented. That was even prior to this, you know, that was, I think, a, you know, a driving factor to the inflationary environment in which we occupy today. Um, I would also help consumer companies to start to think about when we re-pivot away from, you know, the, the adrenaline of opening the box at home from the goods, when we come back into the services-oriented environment, how are consumer companies offering the service consumption opportunities as well? 
Well, Alexis, we're going to have to leave it there. So many great questions and great insights. We really appreciate your time. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Dr. Alexis Crow, the leader of PwC's geopolitical investing practice. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's international tax services leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.